I'm Jim Calloway. And I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the 52nd edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Today, our topic is Start It Up, Reboot, or Reload, the technology that lawyers need today. We are very pleased to welcome as our guest, Baron Henley, an old friend who lectures with us frequently at ABA Tech Show, and we'll be doing so again this year at Tech Show, March 29th through 31st. Baron is a partner in Affinity Consulting Group and lectures about technology across the country. He is a very enthusiastic and knowledgeable presenter on legal technology subjects, so we're absolutely delighted to have him as our guest. Welcome, Baron. Glad to be here. Thanks. Baron, when it comes to buying new computers, lawyers are now struggling with another decision, the decision between Windows and Mac. What are your thoughts about that issue? Well, that's an interesting question because I actually did uh, I did some some research into uh, you know the appropriate Mac configurations because in the past we always did Windows machines when I teach a CLE class and you know Mac is a still a significantly small piece of the legal market so I decided after enough people complained about me not addressing the Mac directly to go and and look up. A, a Mac configuration I'd recommend because one of the things we do quite frequently is is make recommended configurations to people since we do not sell computers. You know, we certainly don't have any problem telling people what they should look for in a configuration. In any event, I first started with the Apple Store. So I went to the Apple Store and I configured a MacBook Pro and a uh, uh, an iMac for the desktop. And just I'll, I'll focus here on, on the MacBook Pro, the, the laptop version. I, I built a configuration, which, which honestly was quite easy. There was very few questions to answer in order to configure a computer uh, on the Apple Store website. So I, I built it out. And then I went out and I took that configuration. And I, in this case, I went to Dell.com. And I decided that I would build as closely as I possibly could in a, a duplicate configuration in a Dell. And so I picked out a particular model. Uh, in this case, it was the Latitude E6520, which is basically their desktop replacement business class laptop. It's not the fastest one or the fanciest one, and it's not the slowest one. It's kind of right in the middle of their product line. So the first thing that, uh, that I noticed was that in order to match the Mac configuration, I had to upgrade basically every single thing on the computer. So, for example, the, the Windows was defaulted to a, a 5,400 RPM hard drive, and so I had to upgrade that to a 7,200 RPM hard drive to match the Mac. It defaulted to a discrete video, I'm sorry, an integrated video, which is slow and, and uses up other system resources. So I had to upgrade that to a discrete video to match the Mac. The processor on the Mac was um, was an i7, which I think is much faster than the average business user would ever need. But I upgraded to that as well. Of course, it's, it came in with an i3. The Windows machine defaulted to an i3, and you could upgrade to an i5 or an i7 with varying megahertz. So I upgraded those, and I had to upgrade the RAM, and then I had to upgrade the warranty significantly. And I got the um, I got the included in the MacBook Pro was their uh, highest end three-year warranty. I got the backlit keyboard and the webcam and the mic combo because the Mac included all that stuff. So after upgrading literally every single thing on the Windows computer to try to equate that equate it to that of a Mac, I looked at the pricing comparison. And oh, by the way, I included with those 
Microsoft Office, Home and Business. Oh, that was also included in the default configuration. The Mac came in at $3,148. The Windows machine came out in, came in at $1,825. So that, if you're doing the math, that makes the Mac $1,323 more expensive or 72%. And the, in spite of that, the Windows had some advantages. Uh, namely, it had a half-inch larger screen. It included Adobe Acrobat Standard, which I could get bundled with uh, Microsoft Office, which was not an option on the Mac. It had actually a faster CPU. I couldn't get the exact same one in the Windows. I got an i7 2.7 gigahertz. The Mac had an i7 2.5. And very importantly, I think, the, the Windows machine came with an on-site three-year next business day pro support warranty, which is Dell's highest end warranty, 24-7 support, guaranteed no hold time, English-speaking person will help you, and if they can't, somebody comes to your office the next day and fixes it. And I was, I was surprised that Mac didn't offer that, and I, I thought maybe I was missing something. I went back to their website, and I looked at it again. I couldn't see any option for an on-site warranty, so I called them, and they confirmed that, in fact, Mac does not offer on-site warranties for laptops, only desktops. So I think that's a, that means it's, it's really a much lesser quality warranty than the one I'm getting with Dell because, frankly, I don't want to mail my computer somewhere, nor do I want to drive it across town to whatever the local service provider is. Now, the Mac did have a slightly larger hard drive, 750 gigs compared to 500, which is wholly irrelevant if you're connected to a network, and a slightly better video. The discrete video on the Mac had one gigabyte of its own memory, and the, and the Windows had 512. So even though it doesn't really offset, let's just say that uh, the Mac advantages offset the Windows advantages. You're still talking about a 72% price difference. And I think, I don't think people fully realize that. So it comes down to, I'm paying 72% more for the Mac OS is what that boils down to. So I, I do include those now in my, in my system recommendations. However, most of the lawyers I talk to are very price sensitive. When it comes down to the, the actual price differences there, I, I, I think still Mac will remain a small segment of the market. And I'm not saying their computers aren't worth it. I'm not saying they're not fantastic computers. And obviously, many people are willing to pay that, that premium. But there is maybe a much bigger premium than I think people expected when you really boil it down. You also have the issue of compatibility with legal specific programs, you know, basically the top five case management programs, legal specific time billing and accounting programs, trial presentation programs. I mean, you name it, legal specific, it doesn't work on a Mac. Even the practice area specific things, like for example, in Ohio, you can get either, let's say I'm a probate lawyer, there are two different applications I could buy, which would allow me to actually three now that would allow me to quickly fill out all the probate forms on the computer and not have to roll them into a typewriter or do the fillable PDFs, none of which work on a Mac. And that's pretty much standard across the board. The other issue is support. You'll find that particularly for business users, like if you want to set, a, set up a network and have a server, there's very few options for, for Mac support. And there's, you know, in any given uh, Yellow Pages book, there's probably, you know, multiple pages of folks that can help with Windows machines. So that, that's the other issue. Well, I knew that the Macs were more expensive, but I am just shocked at the Delta. That I did not realize that the Delta was that significant. 
Yeah. Ah, so if, if a law firm is trying to prioritize its technology expenditures, and of course in, in today's economy, they really are struggling with that, what technology or practice management issues should be at the top of the list, do you think, Baron? Well, I, we get that question quite a bit, when, when, particularly when people are breaking away, starting their own firms, or they've, they're just going to hang out a shingle. As you probably are aware, there's lots of uh, new lawyers, newly minted lawyers who have no jobs to go to, so they're just they're starting their own firms. So they'll say, look, I got limited budget. What is it that you think I should get first? And of, first, you should always get a, a computer, of course. But from a software perspective, we, we always recommend to get the accounting software buttoned down immediately. And, and there's a, a couple of things to consider with respect to that. First of all, I, I would look for a legal-specific accounting program. And, and a lot of people will say, well, yeah, but my CPA wants me to use QuickBooks. And, and really, that's typically because that's the only program they're familiar with, either QuickBooks or Peachtree. And, and I would not make my CPA's limitations my limitations because QuickBooks doesn't work particularly good for a law firm or legal department. And, and I think, you know, there, there's a variety of things it doesn't do very well. For example, billing statements from a QuickBooks, I'm sorry, but they look like they're coming from a muffler shop. It's just a, not a pretty thing. And there's not a lot of tools to make them look better. There are no timekeeper productivity reports. I can't tell that, you know, how my associate lawyer is doing in terms of billing because it doesn't give me an option to find that out. You can't get the hours spent to show up on your on your line a line item on your invoices. Write ups and markdowns are impossible. There's no way. For example, if I've got a, a lawyer in my office and they're billing X, but I consistently have to mark it down. You know, I read their pre bill and I say, Oh my God, that's that took way too long. I need to mark that down. I want to be able to track. You know what I ultimately build my client versus what my what myself or a lawyer in my office recorded, because that's how I get their their effect their effective billing rates, their actualization, and and many times, you know, you got people that are bill like crazy, but it's not collectible and it's not billable, and and there's there has to be a mechanism for tracking that because that's definitely a knock against an individual who suffers from that. And, and speaking of pre-bills, there aren't pre-bills. Like there's no way to run like a pre, a work in – you have to – you can run invoices <laughs> and you can then mark up the invoices and change the invoices. But they don't even have a, a pre-bill process or, or a way to finalize or to easily make adjustments or managing write-offs and, and, and markups. It's just not built for that. You can't show trust balances. So like on the invoice, if I transferred $1,000 from trust into my operating account to pay the invoice and I want to show that transaction on the invoice, there's, you can't do it. You have to run a separate statement. Same thing with past due balances. If a, if, if a client didn't pay me last month and I want to show the past due balance along with the current charges, you've you got to run a separate statement. So I'm, now I'm killing more trees. i got to put more paper in the envelope. All annoying stuff. There's no split billing or consolidated billing capabilities. So if you did three matters, you're working on three matters for the same corporate client, for example, you can't show subtotals on one bill. You're going to have to run three separate bills. There's no easy way to show multiple rates for each employee and have them automatically picked up depending on the client. I mean, there's a lot of issues like that. So, <laughs> sorry for the rant about QuickBooks, but there's, there's, there's significant limitations, whereas legal-specific accounting programs like PC Law or TABS do all of that as a matter of course. 
They know how to handle retainers. They do show past due balances. They can give you productivity reports. They can show you uh, actualization reports and markup and markdown and, and all the things that a lawyer would want to do. That's just part of it. So another thing that we run into quite a bit is that we'll see people using two programs instead of one. The most common would be time slips for billing and QuickBooks for all the rest of the accounting. And although there is a time slips accounting link, I've yet to meet anyone who actually can get that to work. So if if you can't get it to work, then you're doing everything twice. Every time I set up a new account, I have to set up the account, a new client in QuickBooks, I have to set it up in time slips. Every time I write a check for a client cost, then I have to enter it into into time slips and then manually after I've already entered it into QuickBooks. So it's, it's very that, I mean, that's not double entry accounting. That's just doing everything twice, huge waste of time and, and creates a margin for error that I don't think should be acceptable. You want one program that does the billing and accounts receivable and accounts payable and trust accounting and operating account and general ledger and management reporting. And I don't want to try to get two different programs to talk to each other to do that. Shouldn't be that hard. And, and a lot of lawyers believe that accounting is billing. And of course there's a lot more to it than that, or at least that's their practice. They know intellectually there's more to it than that, but they don't, they don't do anything else but that. And, and you look at something just like general ledger, many lawyers don't even know what that concept is. And so, you know, they want to do budgets, for example. We, a general ledger is a way, obviously, of taking all of my income and expenses and categorizing them so I can run reports and I know where the money's coming from and where it went. So if I was trying to save money next year and I wanted to, I wanted to formulate an office expense budget, if I don't have historical data on which to base that budget, I'm just guessing. I mean, how can you possibly come up with a budget if you don't know? I should be able to run for my accounting system exactly how much I spent on office supplies last year and then say, you know, I could probably reduce that by 20%, but I got to have something to base it on. And, and even simple things like that, if I'm only focused on billing, I, d I don't have that. And then finally, many of the accounting programs are adding in case management functionality. So for example, PC Law has fairly robust case management functionality, which is to say a, they have calendaring, they have contact management, you can organize data by files, you can bill right off your calendar, all kinds of additional things that just come with it that you might decide, you know, solve some other problems for you as well. It's very interesting that even though we're talking about technology, we're really talking about core business practices, aren't we, Barry? Yes, definitely. And and I think sometimes lawyers lose sight of the fact that they're running a business and uh, they get so wrapped up in the work that they, they don't focus on the other things that keep their business alive. And accounting is obviously one of the big ones. If a law firm or a legal department wanted to implement a paper reduction initiative in your experience, uh, briefly, what are the keys to making that initiative a success? Okay. There's a few elements that you have to really have in place for a successful paper reduction initiative. The first of which is that you have to make sure that you have redundant backup systems and rock solid security. And I find that a lot of lawyers assume that this is happening. You know, they have a computer company or some in-house person that's handling their IT and they assume everything's being backed up and they assume, 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 but they don't really know. And, and that's something that a lawyer has to own because if you lose all your client data, it's on you and you can't blame the computer person. So it's really important that the first thing you do is you make sure you're getting complete rolling backups, full rolling backups, not incremental backups, everything on the drives every single day. Ideally, I'd like five rolling backups, preferably, preferably I'd like seven. And the more I can get than that, the better. 
So that's before you even think about doing this, you have to know that you can rely on your, the fact that you're going to have that data and that you're not going to lose it. Second, we have found that every, well, it, it, there's really no exceptions to this rule in our professional experience. We have never worked with a law, a law department or a law firm that uh, has had success in reducing paper who did not rely primarily upon distributed scanning. And what I mean by that is they have scanners on desktops. And the idea is I don't have to get up and walk to a copier. I know everybody's got copiers and I know all the copiers scan. But, I, but that, is, that is disruptive and annoying. And here's the average. I'll just walk you through this typical progression. If I'm someone sitting at my desk and I have to go make a scan of a, of a letter, let's say, at the copier. First of all, I got to get up and I got to go to the copier, wherever it is in my office. It's, of course, not in my office. And then if someone's making copies or using it for something else, I have to wait. And that, yeah, that happens more often than not, depending on the number of people in the office. Then usually I have to identify myself somewhere on that little touchpad. So I've got to say, you know, it's barren or I've got to say what folder I want this to go to or what email address I want it to go to. So I put in my document, I scan it, I take my document, I go back to my desk and I either wait for it to be emailed to me which just as an aside, the last thing I need is more email with attachments. So that is like the worst delivery method I could possibly devise. And it's in spite of that, it's very popular. And in the alternative, it dropped the document into some folder on the server called creatively scanned documents or something like that. And it gave it a nonsensical name. It's just a date timestamp thing. And so I've got to go into that folder, which has probably got hundreds of thousands of other scanned documents in it, locate the document, open up the document on my screen, save the document as a new file name that actually means something and put it in to the folder it should have gone, in, in, gone into in the first place. So here's the deal. I've timed that. That on average takes seven minutes. Now, so when you tell somebody, oh, I want you to scan everything, and, and yeah, you're going to use the copier up the hall, what you're really saying to them is, I'd like to disrupt your workflow in seven-minute seven increments over and over every day. And the reality is people will not want to do that. And when I go to offices that insist that they can get this all done efficiently with using copiers, then 12 months later, if I go visit that office, I'll find that the only thing they're scanning is the stuff they absolutely have to scan because it has to be emailed to someone or filed electronically with the court. They are not, in fact, scanning everything. And I just say I, that's human nature. If you make it painful for people and you, you mess up their workflow, they will not do it. So I'm not saying don't have copiers. Great that you have copiers. But if you think relying solely upon copiers is going to result in meaningful paper reduction in your office, I, I think you're delusional, frankly, because I've never seen it happen. So I would just don't even don't even do the experiment. Just get a few desktop scanners, put them on key desks. They don't cost very much. Our favorite desktop scanner only costs 400 bucks, and it comes with everything you need in the box. So this is not some big expensive piece of hardware that has a five-year lease and you can't get out of it and all of that. Next element, your scanner needs to create searchable PDFs. So there's image-only PDFs and there's searchable PDFs. And searchable PDFs are the kind most people are familiar with. I have a Word document, for example, and I make a PDF out of it. Then I, you, you, know, you can select the text. I can hit Control-F for find and I can type in a word and it will, it will go to that word in the document. That type of a PDF any, any PDF you create from Word or WordPerfect or Excel or an email or any other electronic program will have a, a surface layer representing the original document and a layer beneath that that is the text it found in the document. And, and that's what makes it a searchable PDF, the layers. If you scan a document, 
they are not by default searchable. So an additional software process must be run on them so that they are searchable. And so you might ask, well, why on earth do I care about this? Well, that's the next element in, in paper reduction for this to work. And that is a search program, which could the take the form of a simple third-party search program. For example, I use one called Copernic Desktop Search, and the URL is uh, copernic.com. Or I could get a document management system, which has that functionality built into it. But the idea is I would like to be able to find any document I've ever created, no matter what it was called, no matter who created it, no matter what file type it is, no matter what folder it's in, by either the file name or, very importantly, the words contained inside the file. So the words contained inside the file, if I've scanned a PDF and I haven't converted it into a searchable PDF, then there are no words inside the file. So if you're going to if you're going to scan and you're creating all these additional documents that you're adding to your electronic filing system and you can't find any of them because they are not searchable then respectfully I think you're just making a big mess. So it's really important that they are searchable so that when you acquire the search program or the document management system they can be found by words contained inside and even basic ones like the one I mentioned earlier Copernic can search using boolean logic so and or not within five words of within 10 words of all those little connector phrases that we're used to doing legal research you can put uh, phrases and quotes and it'll search for the whole phrase not just the words randomly in the document and of course you can do things like date searches and i can limit it to a particular folder if i don't want to search all folders and i can limit it to certain file types etc so they're, even, the, even the super inexpensive and free ones are quite powerful in that regard. But they won't find anything if your documents aren't searchable. The next thing that you would have to do is if, if you're not going to have a document management system, which obviates the need for this next element, then you need to consolidate your folder structure and establish file naming conventions. Your folder structure, if I go into a firm and it's, there's three lawyers in the firm, then I am almost certain that if I look at their folder, I'm going to see three folders with those three names. And then under those three folders will be subfolders for each matter that each of those lawyers worked on. And the problem is, many times, they worked on the same matter. So each of them has their own subfolder under their name with some stuff in it related to that matter. And that makes no sense. You would never run your paper files that way. You should, you should certainly not run your electronic files that way. Add support staff to the mix, and the problem's even worse. They're doing the same thing. They've got their own folder name, name or initials, and they've got folders underneath, and they're most certainly working on behalf of other lawyers, and those lawyers have folders. And the problem is I've got one matter, and it's spread out across you know five, six, seven different locations. So by consolidating the folder structure, I mean you will have a single folder per matter, and everyone in your office will work out of that one folder. That's the first important thing. And then the other important thing is to come up with a file naming convention that makes sense to people. In our case, we always used a four-digit year, hyphen, two-digit month, hyphen, two-digit day, space, hyphen, space, and then whatever description of the file you want. Letter to client regarding settlement conference, for example. There's in, in Windows anyway, you have 255 characters to name a file. That's roughly two sentences. If that's not enough, then you need a document management system because you've got other issues with your file naming conventions. But, but that, sh that should be enough. It is in most cases, and that's a key element to making this all work. Next, digitize incoming documents. Everything that comes to your office, not just certain things. All of it gets 
gets converted to digital and stuck into the electronic filing system. You need to have a means next element of storing email electronically. As long as it sits in someone's inbox, nobody can see it. And you need to put it in the public domain. And by public, I mean firm who is interested in that, people within your firm. And so I would, you know, if I have Outlook, I can always go file, save as, save it as an MSG file, stick it into a folder called email under the client's folder. And then everybody else can see those important emails. Or of course, I can convert them to PDFs. The next element is that you need to write it down. Once you get all this worked out, Write it down, put it in your employee manual, make sure everybody understands it because ultimately people will fall off the wagon and you need to be able to show them the standard they had, they agreed to adhere to originally if they're your partners or the ones that you intend to enforce if they're your employees. And they, they need to be reminded of that. And so that's something that they should read when they come in. And if you don't tell people how to do this, they'll just make something up that makes sense to them that might not make sense to anybody else in your office. Or they will do it the way they did it at their last place they worked, which most certainly isn't the way you want to do it. Finally, most important element, training for all staff, right? It doesn't take very long, maybe an hour. You want to get everybody together, want to take a file, run it through, see how it works, and make sure everybody understands how to operate the scanner, what the scanner settings are, how they might need to be adjusted depending on what you're scanning, and walk them through the process. Not only will that make sure that everything works as planned, it also breaks down resistance from the people who are giving you pushback because as soon as they see how incredibly easy it is, it's, it's pretty hard to formulate an argument why not particularly if you could sit at your desk, not even get up and get everything scanned and filed while you do other work. Jim, I think Baron is going to get the prize for the most words per minute of any <laughs> guest we've ever had. Yeah, I was thinking John's not going to have to edit any of this out. <laughs> It's, it's it's so so funny <laughs> but but great great content just absolutely wonderful and now i understand baron why you said we only needed to ask you four questions yes <laughs> and so here is here's the last one i know that you believe that improving drafting efficiency can have a major impact on a law firm's bottom line so can you explain what you mean by drafting efficiency and how a law firm might go about improving it Okay, so let's drafting efficiency is just the speed and accuracy with which you you create documents. <clears throat> Since lawyers spend most of their time creating documents, and sports staff does too, to the extent in a, a flat fee environment where you know it's a transactional thing like estate planning, and I'm charging X dollars per transaction, the faster and more accurately I can get those documents done, the more profitable my practice becomes. If, on the other hand, let's say it's a contingent fee type of a practice. And I know I'm only going to get, you know, it's, it's the same dynamic at work there. If I can get all these documents cranked out faster and more accurately, it's going to impact my bottom line. Now, when I look at the way that lawyers normally draft documents, it's kind of a continuum. The, the, the way most people do it is, let's, you know, let's say I'm a real estate lawyer and somebody comes to my office and says, uh, Baron, I need you to draft a lease. I own a strip mall and I've got a restaurant tenant that would like to lease one of the slots. Then what I would do is I would go find some other lease. I, you know, nobody starts from a blank page. So I try to find some other lease, hopefully where I was representing the landlord. But, but if, if I was going to sit down and come up with the most air filled way to draft documents, it would be find an old one and make changes to it for the next document. And, and there's, there's some main errors that I think people need to be aware of when they're doing this. First of all, it's super easy to leave something in you should have taken out. It's super easy to, take, to, to not have put something in that should have come in 
that wasn't in the starting point document. It's super easy to miss a pronoun. It's super easy to have typos. And, and more importantly, when I, you know, I did real estate when I was in private practice, I drafted leases and not once ever did a tenant just take the lease I drafted it and signed it and say thank you. They were always represented and we always negotiated the lease. So the problem is I can't remember what compromises I made in that lease I'm starting with, but it is, it is defective in some way. But I'm still going to take that and start with it all over again, and I'm going to miss some of those things that I, I compromised on because I simply can't remember them. And that is the real problem with that whole find and, find and replace, copy and paste that, that so many lawyers do when they're drafting new documents. The next step up from that is to create a, a gold standard document, a raw template, where at least – I'm going back to the same document every time. When I, so I've got, in, in the case of the real estate lawyer, I would hopefully have one lease where I represent the len, landlord and one lease where I represent a tenant, and they should be fairly opposite of one another. But that should always be the starting point I go back to, and hopefully I took a little time to identify changeable text and optional paragraphs, and I've got some narrative in there that helps me build a, a better lease. That. That is one of those things that's often on a lawyer's to-do list, but they never get around to doing it because, you know, I can just keep going back and finding an old one and doing the search and replace, copy and paste. The next step up from that is to use word processor automation. So I'm taking the raw template and now I'm adding in some free stuff that comes with Word or WordPerfect that allows me to easily fill in the blanks and choose optional paragraphs and get to a final document much faster. That's even rarer still. And then sometimes people just give up on that whole idea of doing it themselves and they buy a commercial drafting system. So, for example, if I'm an estate planning lawyer, there's a variety of national systems I can subscribe to for X dollars per month or year where I answer questions on the screen and it spins out very complex and sophisticated documents, you know, trusts and wills, et cetera. That's another step up. But the drawbacks are they're expensive in most cases, and you're you're giving up uh, pride of ownership. It's not your language; it's somebody else's, and you're just going to have to deal with it. The next, uh, maybe a parallel move, would be case management integration. All the case management programs have some form of integration with Word and WordPerfect, so at least I can take, I can create templates, right? So I've got raw templates. I've identified changeable text and optional things, and I'm reaching into the case management program and pulling client and and transaction-specific data out and dropping it directly into the document, which, of course, speeds up the process and increases accuracy. Finally, the last and the, the top of the mountain, I would say, is to take third-party document assembly software like HotDocs or Pythagoras. There's a whole bunch of programs that do this, and they integrate with Word and WordPerfect and allow you to automate your own documents. So the starting point is still a raw template where you have identified changeable text and optional things, and and now you're taking a third-party program and allowing you uh, – it allows you to build usually an interview. And you can think of like TurboTax. If anybody's ever used TurboTax to do your taxes, you know it asks you a lot of questions. You answer the questions, and then you get a tax return. This is something you build yourself. So document assembly software does not come with forms. It is, in fact, a tool. It's kind of like a pneumatic nail gun to a carpenter. I can build something with it, but it doesn't come with framing. I've got to build the framing. And that's what document assembly software does. So all of those things, like where I don't want to be in that continuum is in position number one, which is search and replace, copy and paste. And it's a, this, is a, this is a great use of a lawyer's time to sit down and do an audit of their documents and come up with those gold standards. And, and you're going to be infinitely better off if you do that at a minimum. And then finally, word processor efficiency. 
I've been teaching word processing and word in particular to high-end legal users for 15 years, and only 2% of the individuals that I've taught over those years, roughly estimating, had any idea how to control words formatting before the training began. Unfortunately, Word in particular does not tell you anything you need to know to control its formatting. And most people I talk to, you know, say, oh, you know, how can, do you know how to get it to do, for example, automatic paragraph numbering uh, five layers deep so that it always works no matter what? No one knows how to do that. Or they say it doesn't do that, or I can't get it to do that, or that program's stupid because it doesn't do that. When in fact it does, but it's just it's not obvious on how you need to set it up in the first place to get that to work. Automatically updating cross-references to other paragraphs, like I've got a definition section and a contract, and I want to make a reference to that in the, in the beginning of the document so that if I add or delete paragraphs in between the targeted paragraph, that that, uh, that cross-reference updates automatically. That's a standard feature that every legal word processor should know how to do, and almost no one knows how to do. Automatically updating table of contents, automatically updating table of authorities. I ask people all the time, do you know how to turn off page numbering in the middle of the document, or switch from Roman numerals to Arabic, or back, or, or or, or, or start over in the middle of the document. And almost no one knows how to do that, even though they'll claim, oh, I'm, a, I'm an expert at Word and I use it every day. The reality is length of use of Word has no correlation whatsoever to skill set developed. People do the same stuff over and over. They open, close, save, they print, they spell check, and that's it. And they never really figure out any of the other stuff. They do it all manually, and that is a huge, huge waste of time. It is most, uh, without question, Word Word is the most underutilized program in any law firm that I've ever gone into, and that's another. That's a the best use for your te technology buck is to learn to to use what you already bought, and Word is a shining example of that. So that's another great way to increase efficiency. Well, those are really great comments. I will tell all of you out there: if you think you're using Microsoft Word and you don't know how to use styles, you're not really using Microsoft Word. That's kind of a good test for each of you. Exactly. And I'm going to be talking about document assembly at ABA Tech Show, so your comments were of particular interest to me. Baron, we always enjoy learning from you, and we're sure our listeners have enjoyed this as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yep. And Thank that, you. That's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. <laughs>